Hello, music teacher friends. Welcome to episode number 64 of the Beyond Measure podcast. My name is Christina Whitlock, here to remind you that you have a piano teacher friend right here anytime you need one. Welcome. All right, so as promised, today we are going to chat about preparing students for performance. And as I was compiling these thoughts for you, it became immediately obvious that this topic was going to need to be split into multiple episodes. I try hard not to do it, but here we are. (laughs) So today, we are tackling my experiences related to the timeline of preparing students for performances. And next week, we're going to talk more about the psychological aspects of preparing your students to perform in the public eye, which, if you know me at all, (laughs) that's definitely the topic I'm most excited about. But first things first, let's talk about the philosophy behind performance. I know this is territory that comes with a lot of feelings, (laughs) and as usual, I'm just here to tell you mine, not to insinuate that you should change your ideas based on anything that I think or do. So please, you do you. (laughs) Some of you place very little emphasis on public performance in your studios. And on the other side of the street, some of you do a lot of performing. So this involves studio recitals, it can be festivals, or uh, competitions, or anything of the like, right? Just so you have a snapshot of where I'm coming from, I hold one big, like formal recital every spring, but I also have students that participate in the National Federation Festival each spring, and my more serious students do a handful of competitions around the state. Um, On top of that, we do a lot of more casual performances and group classes and that kind of thing. So just for your reference, that's where I'm at. I feel like, by and large, performing helps develop like a crazy number of life skills. (laughs) There's the value of preparation, learning how to trust that you do know what you know what you know, (laughs) discovering how you react to pressure and what you need to do to keep your own unique focus in nervous situations. There's a quick thinking problem-solving skills, you know, like, how do I preserve this moment even though I just played a chord that was completely wrong? (laughs) There's poise, how to accept a compliment, humility, heightened physical awareness of your own body. I mean, not to mention, if we're going to put our business hats on for a moment, you need to know this. Recital days are great for business. Here's why. Parents love to see their kids succeed. And if they are succeeding in front of other people, well, that is the ultimate win in parenting. You might think it's sad, but it is true. Plus, the endorphins are just always flowing after those performance days. And I never feel more loved as a piano teacher 
than after a big studio performance. Of course, that's also because I get to watch a large quantity of my work on display in one fell swoop, which is great for my teacher ego as well. (laughs) Suffice to say, there is a lot to love about student performances. (laughs) But I get it. There is also a, a lot about it that might be considered less lovable. Friends, we have to constantly stay attuned to the student in front of us. And I do believe that there are occasions where allowing a particular student to opt out of a performance is the best thing. I'll give you like a blanket rule that I have, and that's that my adult students are always welcome to perform in studio events, but they are never expected to. I used to have several adults who would play in my spring recitals, but that number has definitely dwindled over the years. And that's fine. (laughs) One of my elderly students once told me, it's like this. I love reading books, but I don't want to read them out loud to anyone. (laughs) The words are just for me. (laughs) I thought that was a really good analogy. And I totally get that. Now, do I place more of an expectation on my students under the age of 18 to perform? Well, yeah, (laughs) but only because they really don't mind it. I do my best to make it fun and comfortable. I would never push a student to perform if it wasn't reasonably within their comfort zone. In fact, here's an example. Like I said earlier, most of my students participate in Federation Festival each spring. Truth be told, I have a real love-hate relationship with that event, but I keep participating because my students tell me they love it. Well, a few years ago, during my summer registration period, I received messages from three, count them three, parents of middle schoolers each one telling me that their kiddo was on the fence with lessons this year, and all because of Junior Festival. (laughs) I had these three terrific students who were ready to give up on lessons altogether just at the thought of playing that event one more year. (laughs) I was like, are you kidding me? (laughs) Each parent was as polite as could be, and they told me they understood if it was a deal breaker for me. But I just couldn't believe I had students who were sweating that event that much. It was a no-brainer for me. (laughs) Of course they didn't have to participate. And that experience right there taught me to be much clearer in my communications that participation in that particular event was very much up to the student. P.S. 70-some percent of my students still opt in to festival each year. Now, interestingly, and not altogether surprisingly, those three students who were ready to walk away from lessons altogether over this one single event, well, they all had something in common. The previous year, they were each in positions where their pieces were not ready until the last possible second. If you know, you know. (laughs) It's not surprising that they did not have rewarding experiences under those conditions. This brings me to the number one most important aspect of preparing your students for performance. Time. 
we have to consider time more carefully, my friends. <laughs> we have to be way ahead of the game when it comes to planning our calendars, assigning pieces, and setting expectations along the way. I know most of us, <laughs> despite being terrific teachers, have probably been in that position where we blink our eyes and realize that a performance of some sort is only two weeks away, and we have a student who hasn't made it all the way through their piece yet. <laughs> it's terrible, right? It's stressful for them. It's stressful for us. It's just not fun times. <laughs> but these experiences are how we learn, right? I'll tell you, I have very vivid memories of a time when I was a student in, I don't know, probably sixth grade or so. I don't know for sure. But I was planning on playing this <laughs> terrible, like, 10-page version of Canon in D that I had found, and I was going to play it in my teacher's spring recital. The week before the recital, I was still really struggling through some of the variations, and my teacher, who up until that point pretty much let me do whatever I wanted, told me that I was not going to be ready and we needed to choose something else. Unfortunately, again, this was one week before the recital, and I didn't feel like I had anything else ready. I could sense her desperation building, and she ended up pulling out this simple, and I mean really simple, duet of the theme from Love Story, and she su suggested that we perform that together at the recital instead of my solo. And we sat there, and we sight-read it together, and I felt humiliated. <laughs> I mean, I was her star student, and here she was trying to sell me on this itty-bitty theme where my hands were basically just playing in unison, you know, da-da-da-da-da. <laughs> and I was just so embarrassed at the thought of performing that piece. I honestly can't hear that theme to love story to this day without my insecurities like stirring up. <laughs> well, somehow I managed to convince her to let me play the canon anyway. And yeah, it ended up being a long, painful performance. <laughs> As a teacher now, I often wonder what the right solution was in that situation. Should she have stuck to her guns and insisted I play something else? <laughs> Maybe. Should that conversation have happened sooner than the week before the recital? <laughs> well, yeah, most definitely. If it were me now, and it was indeed the week of the recital, and my student was struggling like I was, I mean, I would strategize a way to cut several of those stupid variations out of the piece. <laughs> In hindsight, I'm actually really frustrated with myself for not thinking just to cut a couple of those variations that were not working. That would have resulted in a much better experience for all involved. <laughs> but, you know, hindsight. Anyway, it's a mistake we've all made. Repeatedly. <laughs> I know when I was in my earlier teaching years, I consistently misjudged how much lead time my students needed to be prepared for their performances. I've probably quoted Leslie McAllister on the podcast before, but she is a professor at Baylor University, 
where, among other things, she teaches a full semester course on performance anxiety. I can't tell you how much I wish that was a standard course in university music study, but whatever. Anyway, I once heard Dr. McAllister quote research citing that students needed to have their performance pieces memorized a full 30 days before a performance. 30 days. (laughs) It's funny because I distinctly remember feeling shocked at the idea of students being memorized 30 whole days before a performance, (laughs) but I decided to give it a try. And guess what? It really works. That has remained my goal for my students ever since. Now, I know this is not news to some of you, but if you are in the camp of feeling like 30 days is impossible or overkill or whatever, well, I would just strongly recommend you give it a try. And I know, I know, we all have feelings about memorization. I try really hard not to make this podcast completely, like, piano-centric, so depending on your instrument, memorization may or may not be a regular part of your performance expectations. And, of course, many piano teachers out there no longer require memory either. So, I talked about this last spring in my two recital episodes, but... My students do still perform by memory, almost without exception. The short version of the story is, (laughs) I still hold the opinion that we play better from memory, if we prepare correctly and operate on a proper timetable. But regardless of memorization, can we at least agree that students should be playing fluidly through their pieces 30 days in advance of a performance? What about that? (laughs) Again, some of you might think that seems obvious, but I also know there are plenty of you out there who have students who regularly finish up their memory, or for that matter, learn entire sections of their piece, like the week of a performance. So take it from the girl who has been on both sides of that coin. You are not setting your students up for success if you let them consistently get ready at the last second. I used to worry that pieces would end up feeling like stale if they were ready a full month in advance, but the result has proven to be quite the opposite. (laughs) I believe in my whole heart that the best thing we can do to help our students have positive performance experiences is to have them be ready sooner. All right now, (laughs) I feel like I can hear some of you shouting back at me, but my students wait until the last second, regardless of how early I tell them to be ready. (laughs) And I hear you, but again, listen and learn. (laughs) There are things you can do to help your students get ready. Here are a few of my thoughts. One, Send student progress reports home a few weeks ahead of deadlines. Friends, I talked about this back in episode number 14, which was titled Cheers to Student Evaluations, and I just feel like I have simplified the process of student progress reports as much as humanly possible. (laughs) That episode is worth a listen if you don't remember it. Number 14. So, 
If my students have a memory deadline of, let's say, February 15th, then I'm going to send progress reports home like that last week in January or so. And I am going to cite the fact that they have a goal to have their pieces memorized by February 15th. A couple of weeks has ended up feeling like a real sweet spot for me. I know that looping parents in on this stuff is a mixed bag. Some will take it seriously and some won't. But here's the thing. When you are proactive enough yourself to be telling parents that, hey, your kid has a memory deadline coming, you also have the sway of being able to tell your student, hey, I sent this progress report home to your parents and they know that you need to be memorized by February 15th. That right there holds a lot of clout. (laughs) Oh yeah, it also takes any kind of blame for poor planning off of you. The last thing you want is to be behind in your deadlines and then have your student have some kind of massive meltdown at home and for you to end up with a frustrated parent asking you why you haven't been more clear about these deadlines sooner. (laughs) I have been the student in that situation. (laughs) I've been the teacher in that situation. And I've definitely been the parent in that kind of situation. None of it is good for anyone. Those student progress reports are every bit as much for you as they are for your students. So anyway, yeah, go listen to episode 14 for more details, but send those reports. Second tip for you today, I want you to consider for a moment What kind of informal performance experiences you can build in to your studio? Say, maybe like two weeks before performance time. I have had great luck holding masterclasses for my students with guest teacher friends. We have sometimes held smaller recitals that I call preview night. (laughs) That title always draws attention and builds excitement. you know, alludes to this fact that we are really previewing all the good things to come for this semester. (laughs) At the very least, my students will hold performance classes with smaller groups so that they get the chance to kind of road test their pieces before higher stakes performances. You could hold a performance challenge with signature collections like I do in the month of December, You could ask your student to organize an in-home concert preview. I mean, the possibilities are endless. But the genius of planning a lower stakes preview (laughs) is twofold. Obviously, it gets your students bonus performance experience. I mean, that's always a win, right? But... If you have any super procrastinator students, (laughs) this will generally get them to panic themselves into at least somewhat prepared states for a performance with less pressure, so that then by the time the bigger performance rolls around, they really are ready. So, in short, for any significant performance on your calendar, always plan some kind of pre-performance. So I hope I've given you something to think about today in terms of the timeline you use to prepare your students for performance. 
I tried to time this episode so that if nothing else, you can be thinking about this process for your upcoming spring and summer recitals. Choose that repertoire early. Aim to have it fluid for about 30 days before the big performance date. Send those progress reports and plan a low-stakes performance event a few weeks prior. Then, come performance time, you will be able to sit back and enjoy your students and just watch and listen as the accolades roll in. (laughs) And now that I have you thinking, let's toast. (laughs) Music teacher friends of the world, I am raising my glass to you today because obviously, based on today's conversation, we have a lot of things to keep an eye out for as studio music teachers. I hope today's episode inspired you to sit down and make friends with your calendar and map out some really clear deadlines, starting with your performance dates and then working backwards. Set those calendar reminders, friends, they really help. We all know, for better or worse, We feel great when our students perform well. So let's commit today to working smarter to help set them up for as much success as possible. We will all sleep better knowing we have some systems in place to help, right? (laughs) Cheers to you, my forward-thinking music teacher friends. Hear, hear. All right, so that was part one of preparing our students for performance. I hope it was helpful, and I just want to throw a quick heads up your way that next week's episode is focusing, again, more on the psychology of preparing our students for performance, and that is pretty much like one of my all-time favorite topics, and I am pumped to share it with you. Speaking of things that I am really excited about, I wanted to remind you that you can help support the work I do here at the Beyond Measure podcast simply by clicking on that supporter link in today's episode show notes. Top tier subscribers uh, get access to some of my very best ideas, and these are things that I do not share anywhere else. This month, I am giving my very best tips to help make online lessons feel as close to in-person lessons as possible. It is content I have not seen from anyone, anywhere. It's nothing to do with equipment or digital resources, just everything to do with how you interact with your students online. Be sure to check that out. And please know that whether you support the podcast financially or not, my heart is exceedingly grateful for each and every one of you. And I mean that. (laughs) Thanks so much, my music teacher friends. Onward and upward to another week. Here we go. We'll chat soon.